You are listening to episode seven of the Rocky Talkie podcast. I am your host, Rocky Riccatoni. Thank you so much for being here, guys. We're actually climbing the number scale of number seven. Soon it will be 10. It's been, it's been amazing so far. Thank you for joining us tonight. Um, we're going to do a little time, time machine trip here. We're going to go to uh, the year 1989. 1989 was when I, yours truly, was in grade seven. And um, I was a horrible, horrible student. Um, one of those students that would start out in the hallway, sit next to the teacher's desk, have the cardboard office around his desk so that he wouldn't uh, distract his peers. It was bad. I had a lot of, a lot of outbursts, a lot of attention-seeking tactics. It was, um, I was a nightmare, and I was convinced that I hated school. And during that time in grade seven, somewhere in the wintertime, um, I had an outburst in class, and my teacher, Mrs. Evenson, held me back from class when everyone was uh, sent home for the day. And she called me over to her desk, and she uh, pulled me in close to her, and she started tucking in my shirt. This is back, back in the 80s when you could still touch your students and not get, not get sued. <laughs> she tucked in my shirt and kind of buttoned up my, uh, my collar and kind of primped me and <clears throat> set me physically straight with you know, my, my, how I was keeping myself. And she goes, you know, David... I was really disappointed today. I, I've, I've really been noticing how, how much better you've been doing in class. You've been paying attention. You've uh, been trying really hard with your work. And I've just been really so proud of you. And when, when today happened, you really, really disappointed me and let me down. It was so sad to see all that hard work being thrown away. And I remember being absolutely stunned that, number one, I was actually being a good kid, number two, that somebody noticed, and number three, that I had potentially thrown away this magical progress that I had seemed to be accruing. And I loved so much that feeling of being told I was found doing good that the rest of the year I did an about-face and aced the rest of that class of grade seven. Years later, I would come to realize that it was one of the greatest con jobs I had ever experienced. I was like dealing with a, with, a, <laughs> with a card shark who basically conned me into a reverse psychological trip of becoming a good student. And I've realized, as I keep telling that story over and over again, how much power and sway the head of the class can have on the student body or the student singular. And it's shaped my ability to lead people as an owner of a restaurant, as an older brother, as an uncle, and the power of words and the power of steering a life. So it brings me to tonight's guest. Um, to say he's a teacher would be a gross understatement. He would be what you would call a special forces teacher. He's, he's, climbed, he's climbed quite the ladder of... Um, of the school world. Uh, it's quite a feat what he has accomplished. I'm going to read off the tally sheet of his accomplishment. It's uh, tonight joining us is uh, Dr. Michael Atkinson, and I'm going to read you from the script here. Dr. Michael Atkinson has a PhD in sociology from the University of Calgary. His current position is professor of physical cultural studies in the faculty of kinesiology in the University of Toronto, currently teaching classes in violence and pain, illness and human suffering, social theory, ethics, and research methods. Uh, not a big deal. Just kidding. 
It's all right. You are, <laughs> you're a busy guy. Uh, Dr. Michael Atkinson, welcome to the Rocky Talkie Podcast. Uh, thanks for having me. Thank it's great you, to be here. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, I could say without hesitation that you are the smartest person to be on the show yet. Uh-oh. And uh, as, as the sirens will, we're going yeah, <laughs> to say we're going to get going here. We're going to arrest you for that lie. <laughs> I think I think one of the biggest things I'm looking forward to to, to tonight is the um, is the sheer fact that it's been probably 10 years since you and I have really connected. Yeah. And um, it is really safe to assume that the world has changed dramatically since the last time you and I shared a drink together or, 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 or talked. Um, and that is primarily why you're here. I want you to weigh in on where we're at. Um, we are recording in downtown Hamilton, so you're going to get all the sounds that come with it. Yeah, so, um, but before we, before we dive into the social and civic yep. issues, I would love to know how someone going to university or gets, getting out of high school decides, I'm going to take the long road of mm-hmm. education and end up becoming a professor. How did, what was the genesis of that process for you? Do you know what? It's a, it's a weird process. Um, there are often, I find, two paths to doing what I do. One, you know, you're sort of groomed to do that your entire childhood because you have a relative who's an academic or somebody who, you know, really pushes you in that direction. And that's your existence, right? That's your culture from the time you're a little kid. It's stereotypical, right? There are other people sort of like me, even though my father was a professor, so I kind of fall in the first camp. Really? You're second generation prof? Yeah. Okay. Um, I really had no interest in anything to do with upper-level education when I was in high school. I was, this, I was the kid who did super well up until about grade 12, um, and I just didn't have an interest in school anymore. There were other things on my mind. Um, and this was back when there was, still was grade 13. Mm-hmm. And in my grade 13, it was a train wreck. I moved out of my house. I was living with a bunch of guys in, in Waterloo, a bunch of teenagers living in their own house, going to high school. Mm-hmm. It was a, really? It was a mess uh, of epic proportions. And I decided to get my act together and give university a try. And I was down in, in Dalhousie, grade school, but I grew up, a big part of my child was, was in the East, and I grew up down there, and, and I wanted to go back for the wrong reasons. I wanted to go hang around with my jackass friends and do jackass things mm-hmm. uh, and run wild in the bars. And back in the early 90s, I was you know, going 90, 91, um, the bar scene in Halifax was intense. Like it was, everybody was in the streets and everybody was at bars. And uh, I just, I got into that and had real low moments in that first year mm. where it was really sort of existential gut check time. Like, you know, you, you were a smart kid you did a lot of things in, in school and you were just sort of throwing it all away. And I ended up coming back to Waterloo uh, and taking a couple of courses in sociology. And it's like one of those moments where you just find something. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting in a class and I thought, I want to do this. And I was listening to this guy talk in second year. It was a second year course in the sociology of deviance. We were talking about subcultures. And he was talking about his research and he was talking about this method and I had no idea about this method. It was this method where you go out and study something by becoming part of it. It's a very anthropological method, right? It's called ethnography. And I thought, are you kidding me? You get to go and hang around with people every day in life, and they pay you to do this, right? You go learn about exotic things, and you hang around with really cool people. And then you write stories about that. 
And I had known a lot of people like that, you know, sort of in some of the shadier aspects of my late teenage years. Right. And I, I, you know, and I thought one of the great things is, is a lot of these people are sort of really seriously misunderstood. Mm. Um, and I think that's true about so many people in our in our culture. They're just misunderstood or represented in a particular way that doesn't do them justice. And I kind of decided there, I said, I want to devote the rest of my life to doing something that, you know, I really wanted to do. Um, I also, you know, Rocky, the, the whole thing about eventually becoming a professor was interesting to me because I don't know if you guys know this, but like my interest in high school, you know, I was pushed into like poli sci and in business because that's what I was really good at. But what I wanted to really do was the arts, the fine arts. And I was really into, into, you know, writing poetry. I had poetry published. Uh, there wasn't a lot of, t- you know, ton of support for that in my family. So, you know, I didn't feel like I could pursue it. But I really wanted to act. Really? Yeah, and I was in acting classes. I did acting. I was in plays. I was in musicals through junior high. I studied at the Neptune Theater in, in Halifax. And I thought, man, this is the closest thing I'm going to get to acting. Because not only can I research and hang around with people and do some really cool stuff, but I get to get up on stage mm. in front of hundreds of young people and have that moment to like embody knowledge that we you know bring out from books, we bring out from our research in this really evocative, performative way. And I thought this is the coolest gig around. Uh, let me stop you there. Yeah, <laughs> I've always been. Not skeptical, but I've always acknowledged the allure and magnetism that some profs seem to have with their students. Yeah. And I'm like, well, wait, are you sure? That's a lot of Hollywood bunk. But just hearing your origin story, yeah, is, you pulled me in. It's captivating. And, and, and it's like, I've never learned under a teacher like that. Well, do you know that's Yeah, like I learned under teachers like that, Rocky. Like that's the thing. Right. I learned under teachers. This one guy, Bob Bruce, was at Waterloo. And he spoke like that. Like he was, wow. you know, and, and maybe that was my bad experience in first year university is I had nobody like that. Like it was all stand and deliver and we're going to stand at the lectern and just talk. And, you know, every kid is rolling their eyes and it's like, I have no interest in doing this and hearing what you have to say. And I'm, my mind is elsewhere. And I thought, this, this can't be the rest of my life. Right? This can't be... Then you, what you're here for. Right, and then you run into a Robin Williams and Dead Poets Society yeah, and suddenly pretty much, he opens right? up your... It, it takes one person. Right. Right, it takes one person to sort of turn you on to something. That's amazing. You know, I've, I've always lamented over the fact that I've, I've never had the chance to learn under a master. I've had to be self-taught. And, you know, I am proud of the, the process of being self-discovered in my, in my, in my art forms and my skill sets, but the idea of uh, mentorship and, and the master teaching the student has always been something I've always loved the concept yeah. of. So I, I'm, you're, you're filling in a lot of blanks. Like for people who obviously can't see in the podcast, I have a dear friend of mine, Derek, hanging out with us. And Derek was fortunate enough to be under the tutelage of uh, Mike. And, um, you know, Derek's a believer. <laughs> Great student. <laughs> but, yeah. So, uh, okay, you know what? I have a lot of questions, but I don't want to stop the train on that. So right. you can keep going on the uh, how you... But yeah, and it, Rocky, it's just exactly what you said. Mm-hmm. So I did an undergrad, and I decided I want to do a master's. And I didn't, I didn't choose the school to do my master's at because it was the top name school or the top. I went and I found people that I wanted to learn from. Cool. And I did my homework, and I found 
cool people who were switched on to some really cool research who spoke really eloquently and, and made me excited about wanting to be there. And I was lucky to do that at McMaster under a guy by the name of Billy Shafir. And then at the University of Calgary for my PhD with Kevin Young. And, and Kevin I had known from some reading and, and writing that I had done um, on the body, um, social aspects of the body. But predominantly, I met. I, the reason why I went there is I went to a conference and I met him. And I said, I've got this idea, man. I've got this idea for a PhD project. And nobody wants to hear about this project. But I want to do an ethnographic project on tattooing. Right. I want to go out. And, because at the time... You know, mid-90s, the whole world of tattooing in North America had changed, like, radically. Yes. And there was really no literature, and there was really no understanding on it. So I said, i got to do this. And I had my first tattoo when I was 17. Same. Uh, and I, you know, I'd taken heat for it for all those years. And I thought, i got to do this. And he was the first person who said to me, that's a really, really good idea. Wow. And it was like, the rest was history. Wow. You know, the early 90s, I was telling my wife about this, when you go to a concert and if you saw a cat with piercings and full sleeves, like he was like demigod status. Like, well, dude, that, guy, that dude's got full sleeves. Yeah. Now everyone's got them, but like, exactly. it's interesting. You hopped on that, writing your paper at a time when it was a burgeoning just on the cusp of, yeah. uh, of happening. That's fascinating. Do you think that the, um, how the topic is presented is more important than the topic itself yes all day you can take a really intuitively you know interesting topic and kill it and i've been in lectures or i've been at conferences i've even read articles where it's like i have no interest mm -hmm. in this inherently but five minutes in somebody has me because of the way right the story's told and and young academics and young teachers whether you're you know, a professor at university, whether you're teaching down the street at a high school, fundamentally, it's the craft work, Rocky, of storytelling. I love it. All of academics is a narrative. It's storytelling. And you're either a good narrator and you tell good stories or you need to work on it. I should have stayed in school. And a yeah, prof, man. I mean, it's... Prof it's, of meatballs and pasta. Well, I, if it's Meatball the Movies, <laughs> I'm right there with you. That's an old Chris Makepeace joint oh, from man. the 1980s, right? Oh, yeah. Um, I used to sneak watching that movie because there was lots of there was stuff all kinds and, of business and, and going that, on that and Porky's yeah. but we'll talk about yeah, that another time <laughs> yeah. but not Porky's too that was terrible um, okay so let's let's strip away the the um, academia and the books and, and, and the multiple letters attached to your name what in a nutshell if it's in, it's maybe an unfair question to the layman what is being a professor um, you know different shades of of color there. Uh, for me, what does it mean? It means I go out for my entire life and I try to figure things out that other people haven't figured out yet and I talk to other people about it. I mean, that's the really late version of that. Mm -hmm. um, you can be really super arrogant about that and you want to develop this really esoteric knowledge that's only shared with a you know, small group of people. Or you could be somebody who says, you know, I've got one chance in my career at creating some knowledge that might endure and mm. that people might use mm. and people might think about for a while, right? And to me, that's what it is. So the bulk of my day is spent, you know, I'm really super lucky. I read, you know, and I write and I talk to students and I get to stand up in front of people and say, here's some new ideas. Have you ever thought about these ideas before? And so my style of professorship 
isn't to stand up and deliver and tell you this is the way the world is and you ought to think like this mm-hmm. it's imagine these possibilities right. for what structures our world think about where you fit in to this kind of stuff what are you what kind of an actor are you in existence i i, I i'm 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 so sad I, I, I won't have a chance to sit in on your class because just hearing you relay in past tense, it's like, it's, it's, it sounds like fresh air. It's, it's lovely. Kudos to you because, they, you know, storytelling and captivating someone is not an easy thing. It's an art form. You either got it or you don't. Yeah. Or, or some people can argue that you can work on it, which you can, but I mean, like, you, you, you seem to come by it very naturally, so I really appreciate that. That's great. Um, so many, so many avenues I want to go down with this topic. Um, <laughs> you know, like I said, the last time we really spent time together, it was probably a decade ago, and um, the world is moving at a breakneck speed. Yeah. Um, and the power of words, the power of ideology, the power of society, um, i.e., Critical theory, yep. um, which is likely the largest uh, sign blinking in all the streets right now. Yeah, sure. Um, how hard is it to speak in a free-flowing stream of consciousness thought without uh, worrying about what you're going to say that may or may not end your career or put you in the hot seat? <laughs> we're just gonna, we're just gonna okay. we're gonna go right for the you gut. You can on go this one. right there. I have no problem talking about this because. If anything, we should be able to learn within the university or elsewhere mm-hmm. what we do well and what we don't do very well. Um, I'm worried predominantly right now that we're seeing a reduction in the scope of ideas that are presented in our culture, cultures, versus the expansion of them. When did you start noticing that? About a decade ago. Okay. About a decade so ago. So I'm, I'm right on my timeline. Yep. Um, more voices now are being heard in universities than ever before in some ways. Voices that were systematically excluded, kept on the margins, uh, delegitimated, and those voices need to be heard. Uh, we have a lot of work to do with respect to bringing in a full range of critical voices. We don't do that very well yet, um, although we're making inroads. But at the same time, there's a hostility that we've borrowed from our American counterparts about a spectrum of idea. And uh, you know, one of the things that I think is, is rising is an intolerance around ideas, free-flowing ideas. Um, and it's a disturbing trend because you know, even though we want to call out bad ideas, as we should call out bad ideas, um, it's very difficult to speak freely now, I think, in the modern social landscape and there's there's a hundred reasons why and and some people want to blame this group of people or that group of people we're all to blame for this Mm -hmm. every one of us is to blame for this whether it's a knee-jerk reaction to being defensive like hey this new perspective is challenging me which maybe it should challenge you right maybe it should challenge the systems that we've developed but at the same time um the the spectrum of ideas in the social landscape has not extended, it's contracted. And, um, you know, a lot of people want to hang critical theory in the academy for that. Mm-hmm. Um, yes and no. I often find that, you know, in speaking truth to power, critical theorists often don't want to have power or, or truth spoken to them. 
in positions of power. And I've used critical theory, Rocky. It's not a, I'm not slinging arrows at, at something that, in which I don't participate in. But, you know, somebody asked me, I posted this on Twitter a while ago. Somebody asked me to describe critical theory. And I invoked a, a Harry Potter metaphor. Um, and it's when um, Harry's neighbor, I forget her name, one of you guys will probably remember her name, after the Dementors attacked him and, and um, Dudley. Uh, remember in the tunnel? Yeah. And then they go to court and his neighbor had seen what had happened and they asked her, you know, explain what it was like. And she said, it's, you know, it, it was as if all of the happiness mm. has been sucked out of the world. Um, that's critical theory for you, right? Um, it's, that's, oh. that's exactly what it is. And sometimes you need that, Rocky. Sometimes you need to have stuff pointed out. But again, I'll go back to the fundamental assertion. It's in the way the story's told, right? Do you still think that there's there's enough freedom in, in, the, in the ideological world to be able to spin an idea without getting lynched? Is there still safety in how you present an idea? Because ideas are pretty deadly now. Ideas are deadly now. Um, in the same sense that ideas have been deadly for a long time. Sure. Right? And if you talk to certain groups of people, if you, you know, talk to the African-American community in the United States, ideas have been deadly for 500 years. Right? Um, the lesson learned from that, one of the 200 lessons to learn from that, is that you know, words count, narratives count, discourses count, language counts. Um, and to, at the one sense, you have to be very careful and, and purposeful with your language. But the other time, Rocky, your words don't always mean what people ascribe them to mean. Right. You know. But that's the catch-22, right? You can, you can be well-meaning and suddenly find yourself hanging from a spike. That's right. Yeah. Right? That's right. And I think <clears throat> what has happened is the pendulum has swung mm -hmm. way too far to the left in this sense where we say, you know, Every word is intentional, or even we, worse, we say every word exists beyond your intention into something that you don't even realize that you're intending. So now you're taking ownership of a, a generational things and cultural things that yeah. you've never even subscribed to, and suddenly, so has it in, in if you if you could be as truthful as possible, has it compromised your ability to share a message? Me, no. Um, because I, I developed this relationship with my students, I think, and you can ask Eric and others, um, where it's like we're going to talk freely in this class. Right. And the ground rules is we're going to respect each other. Right. And if the respect isn't there, get the hell out of my class. So far, so good? Yeah, pretty much. Um, but, you know, we also haven't broached a lot of subjects in the university yet that are coming, right? What, what, what scares you that you know is coming down the pike that you know you're going to have to deal with socially and ethically and topically? Well, I think the big thing that we're going to have to deal with, I don't see it doesn't scare me, but it, it makes me curious because I don't know how we're going to deal with this. In the context of truth and reconciliation, for instance, and making significant inroads into improving our relationship with indigenous communities, we do a lot of lip service in the university, right? Mm -hmm. So you might make a land acknowledgement claim or something at the beginning of a lecture or something, but that's meaningless, right? And people look at me and they say, well, come on, it's symbolic. It means something. Right. Well, you know, the metaphor that I always use is imagine that you've got a bike, right? You're riding around on your bike and somebody comes up to you and says, hey, that's my bike. You're right. You're right. I took this bike from you and I should have given it back, but I didn't. And they said, well, can I have it back? 
No, I don't think so. But I'm going to tell everybody it's your bike, right? That's where we are. That's what a land right. acknowledgement wow. is. Right? I'm still going to ride your bike. Right. But I'll let everybody know it Oof. was yours historically, that's good. right? That's good. So, you know, that's the kind of stuff that I think if you want to make good on this, if you really are intentionally serious about this, mm-hmm. the nature of what we do radically changes. And, and are we even there yet within an institution to, to live this out? And I don't think we're anywhere near that yet. And that begs questions that are too big for either of us to answer. It's That's like, right. how do you make reparations for, you know, 500 years of... That's right. You know, call- in a meaningful way. Yeah. Uh, in a meaningful way. You know, I, I, I... Just to mildly weigh in on this, you know, we have been so inundated with cause causes and uh, people who... We'll take a cause and they'll become a, they'll virtue signal or, or they'll gaslight or they'll yeah. there's a new outrage seemingly every 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 three months, and um, it's getting really hard to care because right. you could have a legitimate backed up proven issue being spoken about and your ability to eye roll is yeah. so easy to do now and yeah. so knee jerk because like oh god another one. And so by, by just proximity and through the, the habitual nature of new problems, yep. you're not hearing the message anymore. You're just hearing another angry voice. Yep. And that's really frustrating because I am an empathetic person. Yeah. And my poor wife, she thinks I'm just this some bygone old model from another generation that just uh-huh. rants and raves no. at all these you know, seemingly progressive issues. But... There's so much, so much of the time, I can't keep track or get behind any one thing. And so yeah. maybe you can speak to that. that you know, I, it's There's so many things on the table. There. There's so many things. In the first instance, um, we're really poor at knowing history. Yes. And I think this is one of the very first things that I would love to see more, you know, more of taught in elementary schools and high schools is, is, is history, like a broad spectrum of history. Not just the perspective of one, but history in a sense, because most people who get behind, and I'm equally as frustrated with you about anger and rage, we'll talk about that in a second, Mm. but most people don't know how far we've come or understand how far we've come as a nation of people um, in the way in which we think about things, the way in which we act towards things, the freedoms, the rights that we've extended from ourselves to others, It's, it's incredible the metamorphosis, the ongoing metamorphosis, and it's nowhere near complete, not even close. I mean, we still have a long way to go. But when you lose perspective from history and to know battles that people have, have fought, like serious battles, mm-hmm. cultural battles, mm-hmm. you know, wars, um, the process of developing systems that we've developed over the course of hundreds of years around the world, not just in Canada, but elsewhere around the world, you, you then can look at any grievance that happens. My soup across the street is too cold, and this is an offense to my humanity, right? I think when we grow up without a lack of context, a lack of understanding about the context of suffering, what other people have gone through, the depths of, of the human experience that has brought us to this country and this place this year, it's easy to become and fashionable to become outraged by everything. Mm -hmm. And it dilutes serious social issues from having the gravitas that they deserve. That's right. Because everything becomes a battleground. Does it make you a better person being constantly outraged? No. It makes you a tired and bitter 
disaffected, mm -hmm. angry person. And, the, and along with the perspectives that we've talked about narrowing, I say the level of hate is rising in our society. I agree with you. It's like that scene in Ghostbusters. Yeah, where the stay puff shows <laughs> the, up, right? The ectoplasm's just full of hate. And, you know, it's, so a, whole, much it's hate, a stupid man. analogy, but it's kind of true. It's like, it's just, you know, it's... So, again, this, this, this podcast will be rife with unfair questions, but you're, you're smart, so you can right. handle it. Can you give me a, a side A, side B, um, 10 years down the road with this current trajectory of the social... Um, uproar and, and outrage uh, culture. Yeah. Left unchecked, where is this heading? That's a really good question, and I think that... Book burning? We already do that. I right. Mean, we already... Not, not physically, but we are, it seems yeah, to Yeah, I mean, symbolically. Yeah. Um, telling people what they can't read. I mean, that's sort of the worry for me, is the infantilization of the populace that we see right now, right? You can't do this. You can't think this. You can't read that. Um, in the sense that we're making all kinds of choices at a governmental level for people. That's the antithesis of freedom. It's thought crime. It is, and it's, it's the idea that, that even in the university, I'm, I'm pretty confident in saying that you're not able to think the full spectrum of things. And I'm not, like, I, this doesn't mean, and, and people react to that and say, oh my God, what are you talking about? Are you talking about protecting hate speech? That's the farthest thing from what I'm talking mm -hmm, about. Mm -hmm. Because hate speech and none of that stuff has any place in a civilized society. See, but the fact, and I want, please don't forget this train of thought, but yeah. the, the fact that you had to sidestep and do a precursor and that's say, right. do a footnote and say, not that I'm saying hate speech, yeah. that's what we've come to. You can't even say something that might have been misconstrued. You have to, you have, to have a little attorney that pops out, yeah. says, no, I wasn't talking about hate speech, boop, back in like a cuckoo clock, yeah. and then you continue with your story. That's where we're at. Yeah, that is where we're at. We're at that in so many circles and so many contexts of our lives where it's like, you know, you're making corrections. Let's be honest. Mm -hmm. You're making corrections for homophobic things that are said. In real time. In real time for sexist things, racist things that continue to be said and done in our society and have zero place in our society. But we've lost focus of those issues at times towards issues of very minor social significance, mm -hmm. right? Like everything becomes a grievance in this kind of culture. Um, and in that context to your question, where do we go from 10 years to a culture that is just rife with the kind of entitlement that we see now? Um, my view is the right view. My perspective is the right perspective. If my perspective is not appreciated, um, you're undermining my humanity. Um, I, listen, students tell me all the time, like, sir, I, I just listened to what you said and I don't agree with that. Awesome. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Tell me why you don't agree. Let's have a conversation mm -hmm. about that. And I learn all the time from my students. My students teach me mm. as well as, you know, I hope to teach them. But we have to maintain that in a civil society. We have to maintain that idea. How do you, how do you think we got here? Another unfair question. Well, you know, <laughs> um, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, yeah. right? As we all know. And um, it's, it's not a question of, and let's separate these issues. It's not a question of having alternative worldviews come to the fore and be taken as legitimate. That's not, that's not how we got here. Is it the lack of the family table? The lack of the family? Is it's it school? a lot of stuff. It's, I think it's the, it's the rote individualism that underpins a lot of our culture. It's the lack of experience 
that a lot of people have in actually dealing with social problems in the world. Like some of the best, best lessons I've ever learned in my life um, didn't come from my family, didn't come from here, although some of the you know, most important did come there. Mm. It came from doing research mm-hmm. in the field with people, right. right? Where you learn how to get along and talk with and integrate yourself into new social groups because you genuinely want to learn from people. Rocky, I think that's what's missing. Right. Integrating with other people to say, I want to learn from you versus integrating with other people to say, I'm going to speak at you. Right. I'm going to tell you something. You better listen to me. And if you don't listen to me, it's a crime against humanity. I think the we've carved out a massive piece of structural integrity that allows someone to be found worthy of where they end up. So, yeah. like, case in point, like, let's say Jake Paul, Logan Paul. Yeah, okay. sure. So, this is a microcosm. So, you start boxing at eight years old, and you sweat gallons of sweat. You break your face. You lose fights. You win fights. And you spend 10 years minimum um, building your bones as a fighter. Yeah. And, and legitimizing yourself because you're found accredited by building properly. Yeah. Then you yes. get you get to bypass all that because you have clout, you have draw and you have monetized popularity and you can bypass 10 years of training and and digging yourself up to yeah. status and getting right to the title shot. Right. So I think that is a microcosm I'm I'm finding of of immediacy versus building legacy and building yep. slow. And I think Again, it's that's a sweeping statement, but it's it's hard work and waiting. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I say in um, in an intro class that I teach in research methods, and I genuinely mean this, it's not just a performative shtick that you use, right? And it's not a, it's a not a rhetorical device. It's it's legitimately true because I want my students to think this, and I'll say to them, listen, I've been doing this as an undergrad for a long time. Just do the math, right? If I started in 1990, it's not my first rodeo, right? And I say to them in the research methods class that like, the perspective that you have to have, even at my age, is I don't know anything. Mm. And I hope that someday I learn something, right? Like I know something because it's that iterative process, Rocky, of building up your knowledge, not over days or months or years, but like decades about stuff. And it's really now only at a certain part of my career where I feel qualified to teach the kind of courses that I teach because it's like, you know, everyone, this is based on 30 years right. of study in this area. And I don't even think it's scratching the surface in a lot of this. And I'm just here to give you some ideas versus the surety of people's opinions mm-hmm. in everyday life. I'm astonished with that. Mm-hmm. It's so antithetical to human interchange and social discourse and, you know, loving and caring about one another. It's this idea that I'm going to learn from you and you can learn from me. And let's build that up versus I know I'm right. I want to be right really quickly because I read something on Google and I've, I've seen it on Facebook. So now I know something. And I think that sort of slow progressual or progressive knowledge accumulation is something that we don't value so much anymore because everything is so speedy. Right? Yeah. You, can, you can seem to know something so quickly. What scares me is that there is a generation on the earth right now that that is trying to find an ideal or a cause to get behind. And I think yeah. that's I think that's a virtuous thing. Yeah. But I think because everybody wants to rally behind something and do something good. 
But I don't think necessarily every cause is found good. So we're stuck with these people for the next 80 years. Yeah. So how do we, how do you, how do you smooth this over? How, how, what circumstances well. have to come on the earth to make <laughs> this angry mob, this rabble um, of, you know, they, whoever they are. Whoever they are. Yeah. Um, that can really sway culture and, and um, laws and bylaws and constitutions and, what do we do for the next 50 years? Like we got to have some collective belief in things. We have to have some collective belief. It's the glue that ties us. Work doesn't tie us together. Although social theorists would disagree with me. Mm. Um, collective belief, sentiments, feelings, um, a different way of saying it, Rocky is, um, what is the meaning that underpins most people's existence? It's not, you know, people conflate this all the time, right? You know, the, the, the true, the true nature of existence is, the pursuit of happiness. Mm. Well, how do we measure that, right? I mean, there's, I know lots of happy people that don't have a ton of meaning in their existence. Absolutely. But I know most people who find meaning in existence mm. are tremendously happy. Is the greatest generation the greatest generation because they had a war to rally against collectively? Do Maybe. we need, do we I mean, need a Hitler to... No. <laughs> We've had several. I mean, um, but, you know. as a rallying point for humans to get behind one cause. Like, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't think you need necessarily something that is just cataclysmic mm -hmm. as that, but you have to be able to, rather than focus on the way we are all different, how are we similar? Right. What are the meanings? Um, you know, there's been some really great research done on this globally. And if I had, you know, if I asked you guys around the table, what do you think across cultures? Like, I'm not just talking about people who look like me or, you know, this person on the street or that person on the street. If you do research across cultures, what would you guess makes people the most happy? What would you guess? Like, what were some of the things? I would say hard work, family. Family is one of them. Social bonds, yeah. right? Meaningful social bonds. I'm going to say, for me, that's the, that's the biggest thing. It's the number one thing. And, and, and outside of that, the only thing, the other thing that would give you purpose is to, is to make a, um, provide a life for those said people that you love. Right. Okay, so let's, let's stick with the first one. So family and living in small group contexts, right? Seem to be when we go across cultures that living with a small group of very supportive people who love and, and love you, that gives you a really bedrock meaning mm -hmm. of existence. Movement, being able to move, being able to do things, physically expressing yourself gives people meaning. And work that you find meaningful. These are, these are three central things that we, when we do cross-cultural research, these are the things that, that underpin meaning in our existence. And my bigger thesis throughout the nature of my work for over 30 years that I've been working on is the way in which we've taken that sense of self and dislocated it from all of those things, Rocky, and put it, extracted it into other things, other people, other images, other ideas, um, things that are exterior to me that I don't have any control over, but I let define myself. And those things are fleeting and they change mm. and they're impermanent. So your existence and the meaning of your sense of self is currently and constantly anchored to things that are external to you, that end up not having a lot of significance to you, and hence you follow along and you look for different groups of people to find some sort of meaning or purpose in there, right? So when you don't, the old adage, when you don't know who you are, Right? When you don't stand up for something, you'll lie down for anything. Right, absolutely. 
right? And that's what I think if, if you start doing your homework on this and you start observing the people who come into your place and you start asking questions, and you, you don't have to ask a lot. And when I do interviews with people across you know, hundreds of you know, contexts, you'll find the same thing. The people who I sit in awe of across the table have a deep connection to meaningful things, which is why, this is a whole other subject, where I think really religious people scare the hell out of the average person. It's not because of the religion. It's the idea that you have something so deeply meaningful to you that you're committed to that I can't even get my head around that. You can't make the leap. I can't, I can't, like most people can't commit to those meaning structures in any way, shape, or form. I'm going to use that as a, as a jump off point. Yeah. So, you know, at, at, a, at a cross, at a very pivotal uh, crossroad, I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. Wow. Well, you can pivot in, at a crossroad in, 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 for sure. Um, I was, it seems like 22 to 24 is like, go time for a lot of people where they make a serious decision about where they're going or not going. Yeah. Um, a lot of people, so how old are you on average when you go to post-secondary? 19, 20? Nowadays it's like 17, 18. Jeez Louise. Okay. So young, man, young. So my, my road to discovery was found on the spiritual road. Yep. And, and I went down that road full tilt with desperation and with a complete hunger for change and for an escape from where I was currently residing. Some people go to university and then, yeah. and, and they get fed that way. Some people yeah. go the, I'm going to plant trees in you know, Northern BC. <clears throat> Some people go to Bali and they eat, pray, love. Yeah. One thing I'm always remarked about <clears throat> is the amount of people who live in my social sphere, who are spiritual, quote unquote, yeah. and believe in, you know, divinity and God and, um, you know, Jesus Christ, there's that big name. A lot of them, when they come out of university, have said similar yeah. things. I almost lost my faith going to school. Oh, yeah. Why do you think that is? Because we teach the antithesis of that in um, university. We teach the exact opposite of that in university. Is that intentional? Uh, it's a different framework. Like, well, unless you're in theology, right. you know, <laughs> university. Um, you know, uh, we don't, it's not a conscious, well, that's a kind of a disingenuous thing I was just about to say, but I'll back up. You know, the Enlightenment is a significant battle between emerging scientists and the church. Right to wrestle the construction of social knowledge. Can they coexist? And the meaning of physics, I absolutely think they can. Okay. And I see examples of that in every one of my classes, right? Where students from wide range of religious backgrounds, devout in their faith, mm -hmm. but oftentimes will express to me or ask, you know, can I do a different assignment on this? Because this is gonna fundamentally right. change, you know, or not change my worldview, you know, you know what I mean. Um, I fundamentally oppose these particular ideas, and I say, go for it. You know, I'm not here to, you know, take religion out of out of your existence. It's not what we should be doing. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think they sh can and should coexist. Right? You know, I think it's more the people that were raised raised and bred in church, in any in any societal. Uh, 
the word I'm looking for, construct. Yeah. Once you get to the place where you can go out and sow your wild oats, you want to find out for yourself if you actually believe what you've been told you, you believe. Right. So I don't think it's the same across the board. Like, if I were to go to university after going to church at 24, I don't think my faith would have been shaken. Right. But I think if I was raised, born and bred in church and had year one to year 18 be all about church, 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 then I think that's where the the yeah. rattling of of concepts starts happening because it's like oh wait there's another there's another paradigm there's another yeah. there's another perspective and I think that's kind of more I'm answering my own question yeah there's hundreds of paradigms <clears throat> but I'm one but I think the, the the root of what I want to know is 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 and you've answered that question is is how much of that is an intentional chipping away at where we've been Christian as Christians in the last 200 years in North America again I think you've got the full range of people there I think that you've got let's not mixed words you've got people in a university like you'll have people on the street who have nothing to do with religion want nothing to do with religion think it's you know a complete social construct that it's meant as a tool to shape people's thinking and and oppress them Mm -hmm. and they will be there and sometimes that might come out subtextually in what they teach and sometimes it's it's right there in theory right to say that you know church does this and church i mean you go back to critical theory you can't read karl marx mm-hmm. you can't read the basis of critical theory and not think okay this is attack on religion when he says mm-hmm. you know, religion is the opiate of the masses i mean this is not a subtle condemnation right but then you have of the fuller range of people you know faith-based professors uh, students who have who are doing some really cool things at university to yep. say, you know, we can have, and we're talking predominantly about science, right, as a paradigm versus the humanities, which is a little bit different. But when we're talking about science, you know, it, it it's really hard to reconcile some of the ontological and epistemological assumptions of science with theology. Right, right? it really is, but they coexist. It doesn't mean that everybody wants them to coexist there. Um, but they do. They do coexist. And I think it's actually been, you know, first and second generation uh, students who have immigrated to Canada from a range of different faiths that have really pushed the university and made us reconsider this, right? Made us look at this and say, do you know what? It's not just about creating a Muslim student's group or a Christian student student's group or a Jewish student's group, and you've got your little house on campus and you can do your thing and you have your associations. It's to say and to argue, what is the legitimate place of faith on a campus? Right. And if we believe in anything that a university is an institute of higher learning, how can faith-based ways of knowing be excluded from that? Mm-hmm. And that's, again, getting back to the First Nation um, Indigenous persons um, subject. I mean, that's what we're bringing in, in in a lot of ways, are different faith-based ways of knowing from indigenous populations. And it, it's, it's, not, it's not a detriment to our base of knowledge. It's, it, it's exploding with ideas right. about how we can explore these things. But I would have said when I was an undergrad, Rocky, extraordinarily difficult mm-hmm. from any faith to be a faith-based person in a university. It's, right. And I could see how so many students would come out on the other side mm-hmm. thinking everything I've been told is a lie. Is a lie. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Thank you for that answer. Um, you know, listening to you speak, especially in your origin story component of, of the podcast, I, I can't help but think that there's a resounding sense that you just really care about people. And that I think you like, not the underdog, but I think you like to represent a group and to 
and to understand them so that you can defend or discuss them in the greatest way possible. I feel like you're an advocate. I think everybody can be an advocate, man. I think that the basis of my perspective on being a professor is you have to care deeply about people. Yes. Not just the knowledge. I mean, I, I, listen, I can be selfish. And half the reason, not half, part of the reason why I went to university is I just get really nerdy and, and into complicated theories and methods. And I, I like writing really complicated things. And I, I love to write. I mean, it's a, a big passion of mine is being a writer. But like, I, I don't think I would have chosen the kind of methodologies that I, that I do use if I didn't like people. And I right. like being around people. That's huge. And uh, I think people have really important things to say if you listen. That's good. If you listen to them um, and express like a fundamental care, you can get away. Let's get back to you know our earlier conversation. You can you can talk about some really really difficult things. Yes. Yes. If you express first and foremost, I respect you. Yeah. And I care about this conversation. And it ties into something you were saying before. That's why we get into so many fights. It's because people don't do that work to say, I, I really, really, um, I respect you. I, I care about including you in this group. And I, I want to be a part of this group too. And how do we work that out? So, you know, context in the United States where politician X or politician Y basically says half the country are deplorables or they're, they're totally this... How do you start from that position? How right. do you start from that position where I say, basically half of you, I don't care about? That's just straight up good old fashioned division. It's division, yeah. right? And I think if you, to circle back to a question you asked before, what has changed the most is the way in which we gladly divide mm. ourselves up now more than other, more than you know, any point in, in my life where I wanna be a part of this group yeah. and you're gonna be a part of that group and you're gonna be a part of that group and I don't like you and you don't like me. I just can't get my head around that. It's like one big street fight. It's like you're a jet or you're a shark. Yeah. You're a pink lady or you're a T-bird. Yeah. Like it's, 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 it's Star Wars, Star Trek. I mean, what can exactly. you do? Right? Don, that's another episode. That's another episode. Um, it, it, it's kind of a funny example, but like I'm a chef and a musician, so a lot of my examples come from people that I look up to. But going back to what you were saying, um, if you create a safe space and someone knows you give a crap about yeah. them, you can go the distance with them. Ramsey, Gordon Ramsey, who everyone thinks he's a monster, but he's he's got people with him that are with him on average of 10 years and longer. Yeah. So he builds people from the get-go. Yeah. And he said an interesting quote. It goes, the more the more you have a relationship with your your cooks, yeah. and they mo the, more, the, the more they know you care about them, the more of a rollicking you can give them. Yeah. Because if you have a relationship to, to, uh, to, to cushion the heat of a rebuke or correction, that's the only way they'll hear it and receive it and you can retain them because they know yeah. you care. Yeah. And I think like, that, that is exactly what you're talking about. They have to, people have to know you care, right? Because, you know, there's an old, you know, Derek might hear this and roll his eyes. He's heard this a hundred thousand times from me. There's an old social theory, old as the hills, over a hundred years old. Um, and it was, it was um, George Herbert Mead's idea that was stolen really from uh, Cooley, um, another American pragmatist philosopher. And it's the concept of the looking glass self, right? And that I see in you a reflection of me, mm -hmm. right? And so I learn a lot about who I am 
by studying the way you react to me. So if mm. you're acting to me like I'm a jerk, I might start to internalize that. Mm. And when I do that with people every day, I, I like brickwork. I build up myself. There's a lot of people I wish would, would think that way. Well, am, you I, know, am I a jerk? You know, I think I'm a jerk. Yeah, maybe. Um, but it's, it's true, though, right? We build, we build our sense of self up that way. And so I constantly have to, and I have bad days like we all have bad days. And I can be a jerk to people the same way everybody can be a jerk to people. But I constantly remember, especially with students, they're looking at me and seeing something about themselves from what I'm giving them. And who, what kind of a person do I want to be today? Do I want to be the person who they can see something good about themselves in, that I'm the mirror? Or do I want to cover this with dirt right. and, and they see that back? And you, you, you can't believe the immense power you have, Rocky, every day to be able to reach in to somebody's sense of self and screw around with it. Like tremendous, tremendous power, right? Um, we, we, can, we can think about it this way. You can spend your whole life building a reputation, let's say, as a restaurateur, as a chef, right? Mm. In, in this community. And people could love you. And you could see that in their faces and they, they express it and you express it back. But it takes one person, doesn't mm -hmm. it, to come in here and say, you're garbage. This is terrible. And I'm going to write a review of this. Yep. And I'm going to spread that. And that seeps into you. Yeah. And you remember that yeah. stuff, right? The self that we have is so fragile because it's not ours entirely, right? Mm. It's, it's produced collectively. That's good. So what role do you have, wow. Rocky, in doing that every day with people? I've never heard that perspective. That's very, very good. Well, it also gets into some, this is a totally little geeky thing, right? About the production of adrenaline, mm -hmm. right? So when you hear something really, really good about yourself... <laughs> it can spike your adrenaline. And when you hear something really, really negative about yourself, it spikes adrenaline. Yeah. And one of, the, one of the roles that adrenaline has in our body is to imprint mm. that moment mm. so that we can remember it. So, you know, wow. a pretty good adaptive thing that we have. So do you want to be that source right. of positive adrenaline for people every day? Or do you want to be the person who's constantly dragging well, people down, that, right? That goes back to the opening of the, of the podcast. Right. It was the, the teachers, whether she knew what she was doing or not, she was imprinting me yeah. um, a precept of success and, and identifying myself as in, as in a different way. Mm -hmm. and, and being so imprinted that I, didn't, that I fought to retain that imprint. Yeah. Of success and being yeah. good. So I agree with you 100%. We love that stuff, right? Yeah. And so what's amazing to me is that we've developed a culture, back to another question of yours, where we find people famous or influencers who constantly beat people up. Right. That it's their job to go online and say terrible things. And we follow those people, right? And then we dogpile onto that because we, we think we can gain some fleeting power by being a member of a group that dismisses somebody or cancels somebody socially and absolutely destroys their existence. Troll platoon. Yeah. Yeah. That's very good. Who, who are your heroes? That's a good question, isn't it? Um, well, yeah. What kind of a hero does a professor have? You know what? Um, and that's know, and not, not, to, not to just point you in a corner where you're a professor, you can only like professor things, but yeah, in terms of the context no, you know of... What? I, I don't have a ton of professor heroes, right? I didn't grow up well, in that kind of culture. Poets, musicians. But you know what? It's, um, yeah, I mean, it's musicians. Music is a huge part of my 
existence. Right on. Um, I've got a massive, I mean, everybody says this, don't they? I don't know anybody who doesn't say this, but like I have a massive range of tastes for music. My mother was a big um, music listener and I got it from her. So I have all kinds of musical heroes. Um, some of them stereotypical because I was a kid of the 80s. Give me, give me three great albums that you love. Uh, well, it's hard not Impossible to... question, but... Uh, well, you know, I, now you want to make me look for my phone and say, take it right out of list. And I was doing this with a buddy of mine about a month ago. I said, let's, let's do the top 50 albums of all time. It's hard for me not to start with, again, because I was a teenager through the course of the 80s, to start with The Queen is Dead, mm-hmm. um, to start with The Smiths. Have you uh, seen them live? Yeah. Or Morrissey? Or yeah. did you see The Smiths? Yeah. Where and when? That was ages ago, and I was a kid. Is that 86, 87? 86. And, and then the most recent time that I saw them was in Toronto, when Morrissey came through a, a few years ago. Oh, wow. Um, and he sounded just as fantastic as he did. Bowie was a huge um, favorite of mine. Have you watched Morrissey in an interview? Yeah. It's, he's so good. He's so good in an interview. He um, just doesn't care. No, he's got that thing, isn't it? And it's just like, it's like hateful talk at times, but it's just, it works because it's Morrissey. Yeah. Um, you know, I got, I got really into folk music when I was a kid because of my mom. Mm-hmm. And getting back to the hero, she was probably, she's probably my hero, my biggest hero. I love that. Uh, because she dealt with a lot of stuff. She had a really rough first marriage. Um, almost cost her her life. Really? Um, ended up meeting my dad, had us, uh, battled with pretty severe trauma and depression, but kept it together, battled cancer for 30 years. Wow. Um, you know, she was a fighter, an old tough, as she would say, in a tough old Irish broad <laughs> until the, till the day she died. And she got me into like Carol King nice. and, you know, Cat Stevens and all of that. So I love all of that old stuff. Um, I really, you know, the concert that imprinted itself on me when I was a kid, we had just moved from Halifax to Ontario and we ended up seeing the Joshua Tree, right? Um, so the oh Joshua Tree boy. for me is, is, you know, other than, and this is stereotypical, and other than OK Computer, it's probably one of the most perfect albums wow. that was ever, wow. you know, um, put together. Was and that to, C&E? At, yeah, and I ended up seeing... Um, just this couple past years ago when they did the reboot, the nice. anniversary yeah. tour of the Joshua Tree in Toronto. I was there for oh, that too. Oh, man. Um, but it's, it's mom- like, I think more of music, like, moments. I mean, but if, other than Morrissey, the big hero of mine, um, Ian Curtis, Joy Division. Yeah. Um, unbelievable, even to this day. I even, you know, then fell in love with New Order. Um, but Ian Curtis, it's just, you know, unbelievable music came out of the north of England in, in that period the, of time. The, so. But are they Manchester boys? Like, like, yeah, uh, yeah. It's kind of Salford. Yeah. And Were you into, like, the shoegaze? Yeah. yeah. You check out the band. You, you know the you know band Slow, uh, Slow Dive? Yes. Yeah, they're great. Yeah. Um, what about you, man? You know, I, you know. Let's it, give a big, it, let's get it, an it, album from it, you. If I, were, if I were to go to school all over again, I would probably write a paper on the importance of music and the role it plays in defining human lives yeah. because it's it's such a I don't have to explain it to you you know yeah. um, geez what era I, I think I, I, I grew up listening to Motown yeah regularly 
Right. Michael Jackson was, I got to, I'm happy to say that I experienced a Beatlemania type of yep. phenomenon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I remember when I saw Michael on TV, I would, I would hyperventilate and go, oh my God, it's Michael. And I saw, my first concert was in 83 and it was the Jackson 5. Mm-hmm. And uh, bigger than life. Like, yeah. I- icon. Yeah. And I got to experience that. Um, Prince, mm-hmm. huge. I think those are the, uh, and, and I always say this, Jesus Christ Superstar, that musical from Andrew Lloyd Webber, for yeah. some reason that, that was around the scope of my life. And, yeah. and I, I, I would sit next to the speaker and wear out the tapes of my dad's and listen to uh, those songs. And then, and then when I started discovering my own stuff, it was when I snuck my dad's vinyl and I heard Stairway for the first time. Yeah, 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 and there was something about the production of Stairway and the crackling of the LP and the... I shouldn't be doing this, listening to this of it, or it felt like a time warp. Right. And then when I heard A Day in the Life mm-hmm. by the Beatles, yeah. it was the first time I was, it was transcendental. I, I, I was whisked away. And that was, and the Beatles had a huge indelible impact on me. Well, it's funny because, I mean, my, my brother is, is nine years older than me. So he was, and he was six foot four. You know, when he was 15 years, he's a big dude, yep. and he always was. And I always sort of emulated him, and I followed him to another hero of mine. Yep. Right? It's my brother, and um, I listened to all the stuff that he listened to. And he was a teenager of the 70s, okay. right? So he had all the original Kiss albums. Yes. He was huge into AC/DC, and so there was a huge part of my life where, and still to this day, where I either like or don't like a song based on the drum <laughs> intro, right? Like that, you know, something, like when you get, when you hear, when you're a kid and you're driving around with your brother in his Trans Am, he's smoking the bandit 79 Trans Am. Black one with the gold, gold firehawk? Bought off the oh, line. Oh, man. And you hear the intro to when the levee breaks, Jeez. you know, yeah. and that's imprinted in your mind yeah. forever. It's a primal, right? it seeps into your DNA. So I, I want to keep going on this though. I, it's like when you, when I moved out of the house, I knew I was an adult when I could go down the cereal aisle and pick whatever the hell yeah. I wanted to have. I'm like, I'm an adult. I'm getting Count Chocula. Yeah. So there's what you grow yeah. up. There's what you grow up with, through yeah. and what you love through osmosis organically, musically. Yeah. But there's there are those definitive moments where it's like, okay, this is my band. Yeah. So the first I heard, I went to go see Slash of Snake Pit in '95, the side cool. project of the, the Cool House. Alice in Chains was playing on the PA. Yeah. I was like, who is this band? Yeah. It's dark, it's moody, it's melodic, it's like incredible. That was a like that was a definitive like whoever this band is, I'm finding out about them and yeah. I'm and I'm deep diving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it was Smashing Pumpkins in 90, 96 when I saw the video for today and I'm like, yeah. Nirvana and Pearl Jam, they're great. Yeah. That's my band. Yeah. And there was that like definitive marker, this is a new era for me. That's a really good that's a really good question, right? <clears throat> Um, because again, like it, it's those moments where all of a sudden you hear something on the radio, as we used to do with the double deck, yes. with you know you're waiting to play play and tape, or you're waiting for the <laughs> you know the yeah. idiot DJ stop yeah. talking because yeah. I want to get this song clean uh, from the beginning. And no right? one knows that. And nobody it's, knows it's that. It's a lost thing. Day, right? yeah. Like even I complain now with my Sirius that it has that. That yeah. system where if you go to the channel, it starts the song from the beginning. Really? Right? It's like it's clean. It's like you don't have that. You have to have that growing pain. But there are some moments, right? There are some moments that you hear a band and you hear a sound. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, again, I'll come back to it. It was when I 
first started hearing some of that Peter Hook stuff from Joy Division, that bass, and you're boom, 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 boom. And it was just like, what? the hell is this like why you know and i was you know i was a kid who was big into duran duran when i was you know young because the it was the it was the visual it was the narrative of the visual that they came and smashed like kiss did right. with the performative on the stage stuff duran duran hit the scene and really the re or the yeah the rio album it was like that was a video album yeah, it was like a Vogue. It was like Vogue collided with television and collided with radio. It was just like it was this weird yeah. moment. But you know, '80s didn't really for me produce a lot of those moments, right? It was it was later. And I remember the first time. And again, I mentioned the album where I first heard Paranoid Android, and you think, man, what is this? I've never even more so than when I heard Smells Like Teen Spirit for the first time. And you know, I'm going to university when that hits and when grunge hits. Although for me, always more of an impact is when I hear that first guitar riff from Even Flew the Oh yeah, yeah. I mean that that kind of stuff. You can smell the coffee beans and suddenly you're in Seattle. Well yeah, yeah. or you say, you know, when you when you hear the rooster for the first time mm. you, hear, <laughs> you know, you mm. you remember that stuff, yeah. right? And so I agree with you, right? I mean I remember where I was most songs I heard for the first time. Yeah. Like, I know where I was pulling into what if I was going to a McDonald's or a dollar store. I was in this car. Like, I can tell you what I was wearing when I heard when Michael Jackson's Dangerous came out. Like, I just, yeah. music has such a, it fires on so many. Well, I mean, you probably are the, one of the iconic moments of childhood for me. And I was, you know, a, mo a moderate Michael Jackson fan. Everybody loved Michael yeah. Jackson, right? But I remember it was the, uh, I can't remember what the awards show was. It's the American Music Awards. And it was the Jackson reunion. It's the first time he busted out the moonwalk on stage. Okay, that was Motown 25 years. Motown 25 years. I grew up years. watching that tape yeah. on VHS and wore it out. I watched it live. We watched it live. And I was there with my brother and his wife. And we were like, I, dude, I'm getting goosebumps talking about What did you just see? Like, it was unbelievable. It was, it was like, like those the moments. second coming of, of a god. It was like, what? And I'm getting goosebumps still. Like, it was the beginning of an era. Yeah. And it happened with Penny Loafers and White Sox walking backwards. Yeah. He, there will never be another Michael. No. It was, it's, it's the performative oh. to the un, almost unimaginable, right? The way he was able to take stuff. And I, I you know, getting, again, back to the, the stuff on, on lecturing, is you hope and you pray that there can be a moment like that where you read somebody with right. a story right. or something that they will remember for a long time. And I, I take a lot of that, Rocky, from the way in which I listen to music. So it's funny we're talking about that because the music that I listen to, like I listen the hell out of the music. I will repeat yes. songs again and again and again because it's just like I can't hear this song enough. And, and you know, as we're talking about it, um, and it's hard because it, this one really hit me hard. Um, a lot of Chris Cornell's music does that I knew that you were going to say me. that. I knew you were going to say that. Um, you know, his, his, his songbook, that double album of all acoustic stuff. I don't, I don't, I don't, it's how, how, how can you replace <laughs> Yeah, he... Uh, first of all, I think you and I need to get together and watch singles, Cameron Crowe's yeah. movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. Um, I, I think the Seattle uh, Arts Center... Um, used to be called something else, but they did a, a two-hour 
honoring of Alice in Chains. Yeah. And Chris Cornell's daughter, Daisy? Yep. His wife is Susan Silver, who was a huge, huge, uh, huge agent for a lot of bands back in the 90s. Yeah. Sidebar. But she does a cover of an Alice in Chains song. But it's, it's beautiful. And yeah. it's, it's like, she's channeling her dad. Like, it's incredible. It's, it's unbelievable. I mean, the stuff in his mashup, I don't know if you've ever heard it, of um, Metallica's one with U2's one. No. Oh, you've got to listen to that. Okay. It's, uh, I'm, I'm disappointed in myself. I don't know that. He takes the lyrics from Metallica's one and puts it to the melody of U2's one. Um, and then you, and you realize that this was recorded not long right. before he died. You know, Soundgarden was a big deal, but I feel like we've all realized how prolific Chris Cornell was yeah. after the fact. Yeah. I, I think it's, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, those iconic moments from, for so many of those bands that are now gone or forgotten, you know, the, the stuff with Temple of the Dog and mm. Hunger, you know, Hearing Hunger Strike, you know, it takes you back to particular places. I was at the first two Lollapaloozas, Rocky. Were you? You know, all those bands. You want to look up those bands. Look up those bands oh, that we saw dude, play. that was a big deal. Um, Where was the venue that you saw Lollapalooza? That was up in Barrie. Okay. Right? Um, it was uh, Jane's Addiction playing yeah, the venue? Yeah. And it was, it was you know, it, we don't have those kind of, well, I don't because I'm old and, you were the and right wi- age. withered now. Yeah, I got lucky. You were the right, right age. Like, I got lucky because I inherited the 70s music, or I inherited the 60s music from my mother. I got the 70s music from my brother. Um, we experienced the 80s, and then I came into my own as a young man in the 90s. You were, and just like you and your age group, they digested everything you just talked about and turned it into grunge. Yeah, and then that's so, what happened. Yeah. And then kind of where we are, where we are now. And um, my big thing about music now, and it's what my kids are into, they're you know, 15 and 13, and they're listening to all kinds of stuff. It's just, I don't know, we, we, I think we listened to more diverse stuff when we were kids. I agree. It's really difficult to go on a young person's, um, I, I was going to say iPod, like I'm 110, um, iPhone, uh, and hear nothing but rap. Like, it's all rap. And it's great rap. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not yeah, that's, disparaging uh, the, the, yeah. the genre. I'm just saying, I think we had a bigger palette. We did. Right? We did. And, and we listened to, like, you know, talk about monumental, influential stuff. Run DMC's right up there with me, too, right? And late, Public Enemy. Late 80s, early 90s hip-hop, man. Big deal. Fantastic yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, this, is, this is a whole other podcast, by the way. Yeah, it's an 80s. Now I'm going to get all sentimental. <laughs> and I, I'm going to drive around in my car for two hours we listening should, to stuff on my, on my iPhone. Get together in a car and drive and listen to music. Uh, we could do that and, one, and driving and in a car not, listening I, to 80s. I'm not kidding. I'll do it. Um, Last question of this of this nature, and we'll we'll go back into deeper waters. Uh, how are you doing for time? You got yeah, a little I'm more good. time in it. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you could hang out for one weekend with one musician and get the real version of them, and get in, not get inside their head, but have a real you know dialogue with them, who would it be? Do you know what the old me? Well, it wouldn't be Morrissey because Morrissey would probably headbutt you or tell you to get lost or something. Um, do you know the guy that? We didn't talk about, but I was a huge fan in university, maybe to a stereotype, um, but still am to this day. It's Jim Morrison and the Doors. Yeah? Yeah. And um, not for the psychedelic stuff, um, but he was a poet. Like, he wrote really avant-garde poetic stuff. And that's special. 
Uh, it's rare, and you want to know, like, how does that come out? Or somebody like Bowie, when he was still around. How do you, how do you come up with the things that you come up with? How do you change, right? Or you want to talk to somebody, longevity, you talk to any member of the Rolling Stones. But yeah. Jim Morrison, always for me, that enig- enigmatic poet, but was also just a performer, right? Like a, a performer, um, although I don't know if you could have a coherent conversation with Morrison, um, but he's always the one that comes to mind. Now I'm probably going to change that answer in his, five minutes. But his father was a four-star admiral in yeah, the U.S. Navy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you a Tears for Fears guy? Huge Tears for Fears guy. In fact, when I was a kid, this this plagued me um, for many many years. Um, all my friends said I looked like uh, Roland. Uh, or, 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 yeah, Ball, whatever his last name. I was like, don't say that. You don't want to look like the side guy. He um, was the less good looking guy of the two. That's not fair. Yeah, that's what I always say. Thanks a lot. Um, but I was a big Tears for Fears guy, especially the hurting, yeah. you know, um, Pale Shelter. What a oh, fantastic yeah. song. I want to get that out of the way, make sure that we were. Like, we're yeah, the around. fix at that time, the fix, the Reach the Beach album was great with Saved by Zero and. You, know, you had cool Canadian stuff. They had Blue Peter and, you know, Don't Walk on Past, all those stuff. Like, that's forgotten. Great era. Forgotten stuff. Now we got to go back to the heavy yeah. stuff. Yeah. Uh, so I keep... <laughs> and so I want to I jump into uh, what you're currently talking about in school right now, but I keep seeing your, yeah. your finger tattoos. You have pain written on. Yeah, I have no pain written okay. on. K-N-O-W. K-N-O-W. Pain. So I'm really interested about this. You... Going back to what it says, you teach class in violence and pain, illness yeah. and human suffering. Please explain oh, that. Well, those are two courses. Uh, one is a course in violence, pain, and its manifestations in popular places. So, you know, courses in violence and pain and injury and trauma in the university are, are not as many as you'd think. Actually, which is weird because violence and pain and trauma is such a part of the human experience. It's textuated into so many aspects of our lives. Are you, are you saying that the student body generally has not experienced much of that? From an academic perspective. Okay. We've all experienced it deeply from the time we were born, right? right? I mean, it's, we start from a very basic premise that most of us have been through great periods of suffering. Um, but this course is really a showcase on how we engage violence in a range of forms and constructed in acceptable ways, legitimate it, and then what it experientially, phenomenologically does to people over the course of time. What does it do to people? Mm. And what traumas does that produce? How do we justify it, however? So a big segment of it, we look at sport-related violence and how that becomes constructed in particular ways, but we look at domestic violence, we look at street violence, we look at other things and say, you know, what does, what does violence do to you? How does it write you in particular ways? Who's more subject to uh, having violence perpetrated on them? And, and how do they experience the social world afterwards? It's a tough course for some students for one of two reasons, usually because they've endured a lot of it and it brings a lot of that up, mm. or they have no connection to it and don't understand how anybody could have these experiences. What does it feel like to be, to be teaching a class like that and, and you realize in that moment you struck 
you struck a nerve and there's an element of the room that's gone quiet and you can feel the palpable experiences. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. Um, because it's, it's when you know that you've got a moment when you're being listened to. Right. Right. And do, uh, you, do you always know when there's a click on something that switches on? on the yeah, room? you can feel it. As an instructor, you can feel it. I know when what I'm doing is going right. nowhere. And it's just, and we have bad days. I have bad days. The class has bad days. And it's just like, we might as well pack this up because we're not getting anywhere with this today. And, and, and normally that's my fault, right. right? It's not my students' fault. That's normally my fault that I just, I haven't connected. I haven't found that way. But when you, when you have those moments of connectivity with people, it's, a, it's an extraordinarily powerful thing because you use the word palpable and it's bang on the money. Yeah. You feel it. And when you have those moments, I know the class is exhausted afterwards. I'm mm. exhausted afterwards. It's cathartic. Like it is big. You're together with your, this catharsis. That's crazy, yeah. man. We move towards that, and we deal with heavy subjects. And I usually get about, I don't know, a quarter of the people, they drop out the first couple of weeks really? because it's heavy. Is that much of an attrition rate, eh? Yeah, it's, it's big. I mean, I start out with pretty big numbers. Pain is scary. It's scary, right? What do you think wields a, a bigger a bigger sword, uh, injury and pain or trauma? Um, I think they get into the pain. I'm going to be honest about it. They get into the pain and violent stuff because there's this perverse fascination with it, as there is in our culture, about watching painful things, about spectating, you know, on other people's violence and their suffering. Watching a car wreck. Yeah, yeah and they think that it's going to be that until I start making it personal. And we start, you know, talking about subjects, um, you know, like, I, I use this rhetoric all the time, Rocky. It's going to be a challenging rhetoric, but stick with me for a second. So we talk about the way in which somebody can be brutalized in the context of sport, right? And then you have some jackass, not in the class, but like on, online or something, say, oh, yeah, he should have kept his head up, and he totally deserved it, and, you know, he should have been aware of what was happening, and he consented to this stuff, and I said, you know, hang on a second. So you've got a sister, and she goes out to the bar, and she has a couple of drinks. Um, and she's well aware that's a dangerous context, but she gets grabbed, and she gets pulled into a car, and she gets raped. She, should she have kept her head up? Mm. Did she wasn't aware that that potentially could happen? It doesn't change the fact that should never Jeez. have happened to her. And it's in those moments where it's like, no, they don't consent to that kind of stuff. It is real violence. Don't shift the blame onto them for having been a victim of this. That's, that's <laughs> you know, for lack of, a, of, you know, I shouldn't apologize for the fact that a lot of my analogies come from a spiritual place. But, like, if you look at, let's say, Jesus Christ yeah. preaching from, you know, a boat or Solomon, they have a great answer yeah. to some great questions. Yeah. And what you just said there, I don't think has anything to do with the books that you've read for the last 30 years. That comes from a place of wisdom. And so, like, what, what is, the, what is the, the, the calculable ratio of wisdom versus book knowledge when you're dealing with those real-time moments? It's like, that's, that's wisdom, man. Like, just study people, man. That's what I'm saying. Like, <clears throat> get out of the university and study people and understand how they tick and understand how they think and you learn those things, right? It's not just get your head out of your phone mm -hmm. and, and, and living existentially through this phone or the little circles that you in. I've been taught all these things first by the hard lessons that my mother, you know, talked about when 
you know, to, when I was old enough to understand what she had gone through. My dad lost his only brother, um, who I'm named after, my full name, hmm. to suicide when he was 14. Oh, my gosh. Um, you know, you, you, you understand that most people's experiences have an undertone of those kinds of, that kind of dread and that, that existential angst that underpins a lot of our lives. And it's in listening to those stories, Rocky, where you understand that if you're going through this, you're probably going right. through something, and you're going through something like this. And it's often my job to go through with the religious metaphor even further, to just to bear witness. Right. And so a big part of my work in those courses is to bear witness to what my students have gone through because they want to talk about it. They want to learn what we know about suffering and pain and illness. And that's the other course is really about how people experience illness, right? So we cover a whole range of illnesses and talk about what illness does to people. That's a, that's a very heavy, heavy work week. Yeah. How, you know, like I'm going to, what does that do to you at the end of a five day work week? Like where are you in your head and in your spirit and in your heart dealing with? It's heavy. Yeah. I play video games. No, you no, um, well. <laughs> get on the call of duty. No, um, it, it's, um, a lot of people don't understand, like I, Derek might have seen this, that I tend to leave class like really early. I don't hang around after class. I want to get out of there. And it could be because I'm trying to, you know, I'm a slave to the TTC and I'm trying to get out of there and get on a, 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 a train and then get home. But um, it, it's, it's exhausting. And, and I know it's equally exhausting for the students to listen and to take all that on. Um, but they're necessary conversations. I think that's probably one of the things that bothers me the most about so many of the things that I do research on mm. is that we don't talk about this stuff. The ugly things. The ugly things enough. And I've probably had Rocky, I don't know, 2,000 students over the last 20 years come up and say, you know, that's the first time I've ever talked about that wow. with anybody. And in some of the stuff that I've done in the past on young people who were suicidal, um, I don't have the answers to any of that stuff. And I ended up directing them. You know, you direct people to, to health services that can legitimately help them. But they'll say, like, just emotionally devastating things to you. Like, that's the first time anybody asked me those questions wow. about how I live. And it's not because people aren't thinking that. It's because we don't know how to talk about that. So we divert our right. attention towards other things that are far less meaningful. I mean, I'm not a professor, but I'm, I'm in hospitality and I know people and I, I talk to people for a living and, yeah. um, it's, it's fascinating how much people steer away from that stuff. But if you can get that odd person to go there with you, yeah. there's an immediate rapport and an immediate human contact that yeah. is unparalleled. And, and I, I know you're talking about, do you still love what you do? I do. Um, because it has, it has seasons, right? Like when you're a younger professor, you're like, really really you gotta go research you gotta do a hundred things and then you get to be mid-career where it's a different kind of vibe and a different gig and now I'm what you call a sort of a early late career researcher right I'm 50 this year are you? yeah um, and um, you know I get to do other things now and, and you're privileged and really super blessed when you're a tenured dude like me and at 50, you get to sit down and say, I'm going to take my time 
and write about some stuff and think about some stuff that I've been thinking about for 20 years. Wow, cool. But I, I haven't had the time to slowly get through it. So I'm writing this book right now with a mate of mine in England called Sporting and Humanism. And it's a book really about the way in which sport in many contexts dehumanizes people. Mm. And I'm not talking about Little League Baseball. And I'm not talking about... I'm talking about elite-level professional sport. I guess they're objectified like sex workers are, eh? Yeah. Or women in, in 80s music videos. Yeah. It's, yeah, they're a commodity. Yeah, they're they're so, like a slave sport. And, and you, get to, you get the privilege, Rocky, of, of after years of, of putting in different kinds of work to be able to sit there. So it's like, if you can endure the first really hard 10 years of it, and it's, it's a lot of pressure... Um, a lot of people think professors, you know, just sort of sit in their offices. You get this, you get this image from movies, you know, like Indiana Jones, and you get this huge office with the leather, you know, seats and the, you know, 10,000 books. Library. And this library. Someone That's blinking, I love like you. like not like what it is at all. Um, it's, it's a pressure-packed environment. But if you can endure, and if you're lucky enough to get in and, and, and to be able to succeed... It's a great place to just think and to be able to try to produce stuff that you hope, your fingers crossed, you pray that somebody will read and think, you know, the, the best thing I ever had, and this maybe was, maybe I should have ended my career right then and there, was after the dissertation, after I finished and graduated with my doctoral degree, I wrote a book. I wrote, I turned the dissertation into a book on tattooing. Mm-hmm. Which I own. Well, that's right. Yeah, right. And uh, I had a kid from North Carolina, about a year after that book was written, who wrote me, who found me and emailed me and said, you know what, I've been, I won't go into the story, but you know, I've been persecuted, I've been bothered my whole life, I've been picked on, I've been bullied. I decided to get a tattoo to try to wrestle with those things, to try to reclaim my sense of self, to, you know, something to be proud of so I wasn't ashamed of myself anymore. And he said, I never really understood it. He said, I read this book and I read what you said and I read what all the people that you've documented and their stories about tattooing said. And he's like, this was the first thing that's ever really resonated with me about my experience. And I could have stopped doing wow. academics right there because that's what it's for. It's not for me to impress a colleague, right? Or my dean or whatever. We're all academics. We all get each other. But it's when somebody can pick up this work and say, I I." Get that like a piece of music, Rocky. Yeah. If you produce a piece of music and somebody says that resonates mm-hmm. with me, made an impact. It's the, it's that same feeling. It hits it hits in a way than like anything else. Yeah, yeah, that's wild. And it gives it meaning, right? So we were talking about that great ghost of meaning right. that haunts most of us in our everyday lives. It's like that's what gives. It's not the CV that gives me meaning, right? Right. It's it's the ideas that you send out like your children, and that's kind of how I look at them, right? These ideas that you send out in your papers are like your children. I how love are, it. How are they going to be received? Just like lyrics in a song. Yeah, yeah. so if, if those are your children, you take care of them before you send them out into the world. That's really good. Which gets us back to the words, right? Be careful of the words you send out into the world because they grow up. Mm. That's a clip right there. That's good, man. I, this, this, there's, there's no context to this next question, but I have to ask it based on what you're teaching with the course on pain and yeah. and suffering, the week of nine eleven, how did that how did that go down as a teacher and and dealing with the the awe and terror of what happened? 
I have a, a weirdly unique 9-11 story. Hit me. Um, I had graduated from Calgary and I took my first job teaching at Memorial University in Newfoundland. And I remember that morning, September 11th, 2001. Um, it was my first, I graduated in 2001. This was my first gig. Man. Really? This was my first gig in, my first fall in university. Wow. And okay. I'm in Newfoundland and I'm getting ready in the morning to go teach. Was it a nice day out like it was everywhere else? It was a beautiful day. It was a beautiful morning. Yeah. And I, I was watching TV, standing up eating my cereal like I pathologically do all the time watching TV because I'm a kid of the 80s. And there's a whole other show, 80s yep. television, which yep. is like in my blood. You'll be on for that show. Um, and I'm sad today. Frank Bonner died. Really? Uh, from WKRP, Herb Tarlick. He died today. That was So this is a, you know, God bless him. Shout out to Herb. Shout out, shout out to Herb, Frank Bonner. Um, These guys don't know what we're talking about. But that's probably okay. not, but that's all right. But um, I was getting ready and I was eating breakfast, obsessively watching my television. I was watching the news. And this thing came on about the World Trade Center. I was like, what the heck is this? Like, what's going on? And I, I remember this like it was yesterday. Um, and I saw in the background, it was ABC. We were watching the ABC affiliate. I don't know where that would have come from. Probably from Maine. Right. Um, like from Bangor, probably. And... You could see this plane coming in the background. You saw it happen? And I said... The second one? And I said, yeah. And I, uh, I said, oh, my God, look at these guys. They're so stupid. They're still lit. Because they, they had said, you know, a plane has crashed in. And they were still reporting it accidentally into the World Trade Center. And I thought, oh, my... Like, they're still allowing planes to fly in the area. And it cut. Oh, my God. They went. And it was unfolding. And I had to go teach. And it was when I got there and we heard about stuff that was going on and my students had these questions. I'm like, I don't know. And I was teaching in class and deviants and criminology. And my students were losing their mind. And here's why they were losing their mind. Because the context of Newfoundland is important here. All of a sudden, the planes start coming in. That's right. They had a, the whole... That's where they, people were furloughed. They were flying into St. John's and they were flying into Gander. That's right. Because all of the European traffic was being diverted to St. John's. Come from away. The Broadway show was based off that. I was there wow. in St. John's. That time where all, it was just, and it was weird because the airport in St. John's is like right there. Wow. Like it's not 100K out of town. Like right. it's right there. Right. And it's right off the rock face. So it's like the planes are coming in. And so you're getting a reminder of these like bombers coming it's in. It's something landing. like World War II, wow. right? With the, you know, the, B, the B-52s are coming in. Um, and we went up to, um, after, after school, I'm going to say after school, like I was nine. Um, after school, we went up and, and just stood up in this area. And it was the whole airport was a sea of planes. And then all of those people came in, and they, were, they needed places to stay. And they stayed with families, right? And they stayed with families, and wow. the community brought them in. So long story to get to, my recollection of 9-11 is, of course, the tragedy and the humanity of it and the disbelief, right? It was one of those moments where you realize you're North American and that this stuff didn't happen much and there's that shattering of that sense if not of innocence because it's not innocence it's ignorance 
Kennedy was the end of innocence. This was the end of what you're talking about. Yeah, it was the end of being ignorant to world problems. Mm. And, but what I remember was the humanity right. on display in wow. St. John's. Wow. And, you know, I have nothing but love for the people in Newfoundland. Every, I always say this to Canadians. If you've never been to Newfoundland, get to Newfoundland because the people are top class. My, wife, my mom left, wept bitterly when she left from holiday there. She's yeah. like, I don't want to leave. It's gorgeous what part a, of the world. What an interesting perspective to, yeah. to perceive and to witness Hope during came that. out of that, Rob. Wow. Hope. Why there's not a movie out about that, I don't yeah. know. I mean, if there's a Broadway show. I, I, I didn't know that was the premise of that Broadway yeah. musical. Yeah. Wow. It was amazing. That's I've incredible. never seen any collective expression of care like that and it was instantaneous and that's what I mean that's what I mean collective beliefs there's got to be a documentary about people going to these people's homes and finding out about you know yeah. all these all these stories because there would have been thousands of them but it, it was so needed because it wasn't like if it could have like imagine if it had happened in Toronto there's an infrastructure in Toronto to deal with people in hotels and to shepherd them right, here right. But, but contextualize this I'm on a plane my spouse or my family members, my workmates are waiting for me to come and land. And then all of a sudden, I disappear. Right. And being in people's homes, not only did they give you phones and they give you food, but they also, you know, talked to people and, you know, made that whole process of connecting with loved ones normal. And so well, the, the mass tragedy and the, the loss of humanity and then, of course, the decade of war we're still, we're still yeah, there. I shouldn't say decade, 20 years of yeah. war that that spawned, yeah. of course, can't be erased. But I just remember wow. that crazy moment of humanity that came. And if you're a religious person, Rocky, you say God was in that place. Wow, that is just incredible. To me, that overrides the shock and awe of the tragedy. Yeah, and I say that very delicately, but like I, I, it's overwhelming. The idea, the the human element of that is just amazing. Yeah, the Newfoundlanders are just incredible people who have dealt with like it had to happen there. Well, they know because they've dealt with hardship and tragedy and tough circumstances for the entirety of existence, right? And you go back to you know who came there and right. who settled there right. and. Economically, what the country, the country, I always want to say country because it feels like it's a country in Newfoundland, um, but the province has gone through. Um, it, it had to be them because they knew how to respond. You sure you don't want to write a dissertation about that? You know what? It's, um, it's one of those things that's so sacred to me. I never ever wanted to do any alone. research right. on it, right? Because it was a moment where when you, I, I, honestly, it's so funny you ask me this question because when I often lose my faith and I think, man, people are just... Wow. What's happening? I remember that day. Like, I remember that day and what's possible. I love that you were there for that. That's insane. Because it's like you were the only person on earth who was in a bubble of love when everything else was, war was gearing up. The, yeah. dr the war drums were going, and that was this own secluded microorganism of... It was strange. Like, it was strange, but it was also... Wow. I do, I do agree with you, though, and I'm probably somebody has studied it, and I, I'm just ignorant to it, but um, if they haven't, what a context. And I, you know, I've, I've never seen the musical, but I would love to, mm. right? 
you know, it's it, it's in no way, uh, you know, c- close to being the same thing. But we are dealing with a global problem right now yeah. called COVID. Yep. Um, and you know, at nauseum we hear about it and talk about it. But I've never I'm, heard of that. Yeah. What is COVID? Yeah. Well, yeah. let me explain. <laughs> um, I am curious though how it's affected your ability to do your job. Well, how are you yeah. teaching right now? It's online and it's terrible. I can't imagine the way that you relate and fill a room that you can do the same way over. It's awful. Um, it's hard to be on meetings, I think, as we all know, for 20 minutes on Zoom or uh, Teams or whatever platform you're using that we'll probably have to give a royalty to for using their name. But um, it's hard. It's it's. The word that I want to use is it's disingenuous to teach a group of people online. It's necessary. It's important for uh, continuity, and and people need continuity right now. Um, but I don't know. Like it's just it doesn't feel right. I mean, teaching for me is an embodied act, and it and and being. I do believe that something comes from being co-present with other people in particular spaces mm-hmm. and coming to understandings and being able to see each other and feed off of the other's energies and read body language and, and to witness and articulate human things that we're talking about. Even down to the smell and temperature of a room. Exactly. The organicness of the it. I mean, it's like it. a, 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 having a love relationship over phone. It'd be yeah, tough. It's, I don't envy that, man. It's hard, man. And I've been, I've been lucky that I was, I was only teaching... Uh, two classes this year. I'm only doing two more this year because I'm doing a lot of administrative things. Um, well, that's good. So there's less of it's, it. Yeah. And it's the students tune out. Um, but it's weird. In, in I will say this. In one of my classes, it did sp- sort of produce and develop a different kind of discourse that I've not seen before. Because I do think that in some of the more sensitive classes, people are extraordinarily self-conscious and maybe socially nervous and awkward to speak about their experiences, but it's different to type it into a chat box mm. online and say, I'll share this here. So there's some anonymous yeah. elements. And I think that because the students were collectively going through such frustration and anxiety, they were really cool with each other this year. Mm. There was no BS about calling each other out. They were extraordinarily... We're kind of in this together kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, they were respectful and they respected each other's dignity in this. And then I had in one of my... In the illness class, I had them produce... Because uh, I'm moving towards a lot of arts-based methods um, in instruction. So they, they actually have to do arts-based projects for like learning okay. as a way of learning stuff. And like some of my students produce music... Wow. To articulate, I asked them to do a paper on their experiences with COVID as a reflection on the way in which illness is relational. So we often don't talk about that. Rock is a big thing in my in my teaching that you know suffering isn't just something that I go through. Right. Like the people around me suffer because I suffer. So it's we relate to one another mm-hmm. through suffering and we distribute it. So I had them do a, a project on that, and it was some of the most beautiful pieces of work, paintings poems, you know, original music at the piano or a guitar. And a lot of students got a lot of heavy weight stuff 
off their chest. So there was at least a little bit of a rainbow there. That's amazing. But still, it's, you know, a university is a community. And when you take the physicality out of community, it doesn't feel like that anymore. But we have to keep going. Like, we have to keep teaching and, and keep being present. You've really... Um You've really radicalized my perspective of school and and being a student under a teacher. Like it's, I can tell I can tell, and I salute you for giving a crap the way that you do because it's it's um, it's a wonderful, refreshing thing to see. I, I wish I could have been a student. I, I count myself very lucky hearing you speak about it. I'm curious though. I know that you have made an indelible impact on many students, and I think you'd be surprised. Um, if they were to collectively fill a room and start telling you what you did for them. But have any students made an impact on you that you never forget? Well, there's a guy right here who, um, who's sitting right here who brought a, a kind of a perspective and a sensitivity, especially in the critical theory classes, that make you do a gut check yeah. and say... I can learn from this dude. I can learn how to talk about this stuff. I can learn how to be respectful in a different way to people. I can remember to teach particular things that I haven't been teaching and use particular voices that I haven't used. But students have taught me every single year that I've done this. And um, you have to give them the chance. Mm -hmm. And so some students might you know, point out a reading and say, I really, you know, I think you should read this. Or here's this video that I've seen um, that you should see too. But it's in, it's in that feedback, usually in the office, Rocky, where they come and they say, I want to talk to you about something in this course. And then they expose some aspect of their experience to you that they couldn't speak about in class because it was overwhelming and you say, I need to learn how to incorporate that conversation into my class. I gotta figure out a way how to make it comfortable for these students to be able to talk about these things. Or it could be something really pedantic as, like the students talk to me about how they don't like this assignment. Okay, well I'm not married to the assignment, so let's change the assignment. If they, if they could learn something you know, better this way, you do that. So there have been students who when you establish you can talk to me, will talk to you and teach you from the very most simple things to profound things about, you know, consider this perspective or, you know, I was lost here and I didn't understand that or can we read more about this? But the biggest context that I learn is through their papers because the, the papers that I ask them to write are most of the time deeply personal and it's, it's, that's when you actually get to know your students, is when they're writing. Because I might teach in a class, I meet 250 students. And over the course of 13 weeks, I don't, you know, right. I might get to know a handful of them. But when they write to you about experience in their papers, and you realize there's a lot of stuff going on with these kids, and then you all of a sudden realize, man, I'm pretty old now. Mm. Because some of the things that they're going through, right. I didn't, right. like, I can't resonate with that. The social contract so is different. So yeah. you learn generationally how to think from your students. When have you had moments where you've had to have courage as a professor? Telling people no. Telling people no. That was a quick response. Because it's so common. It's so common. In what context, saying no? 
uh, from little things to can I have an extension on this to uh, I don't want to write a test. Is there something I can do? Or can you, you know, sit in your office and give me the lecture again? Um, so defending a line and keeping it. There has to be a line, right? And mm. I'm really bad at that mm. um, because I want people to succeed. And I really believe if you give the, everybody the right context for success, they will succeed. And you, you have to meet people where they are, not where you want them to be right. a lot of the time. But at other times, it's just like I, I, I have to say no, and I'm a sucker for taking on like extra work that has been asked of me right. by other people. And, and sometimes you just have to say no as a self-protectionistic thing. Um, the other time, and this is, an, it, Rocky, if an academic sits across from you and says this isn't true, they're a liar. It's you spend, and I've spent 30 years developing expertise in particular things, it's hard when you read something and you think, damn, I've been wrong about some things. Mm. Like, I'm wrong. Uh, there's another perspective here that I think is probably a lot better than mine or the ones that I've used. That's hard. It takes a lot of humility to be able it's to... It's hard, wow. man. It's hard because it's like, if you associate that with the essence of what you are, which is our mistake, that deep down I am not a theory in a book, but if I conflate my sense of self with that product, you are going to live a very long and hard life right. in this world, my friend, because there's always somebody smarter than you in, in my line of work. There's always some smart cats around who say, no, you missed something. Mm. So you have, to, you have to learn that you're going to be wrong all the time. It's hard. I love that. We are, uh, this flew by, this last, the last session we did was two hours and that was a benchmark and we're gonna do the same thing. We got 15 minutes, I'm gonna do some rapid fire questions. Sure. Transhumanism. Yeah. Good idea or a bad idea? Bad idea. What is transhumanism? Transhuman is the increasing intersection of the human being with technology, from nanotechnology um, to the most, I don't know, everyday technology. Now, I, I say that bad idea generally, but you know, glasses aren't a bad thing. Sure. Um, you know, contact lenses aren't a bad thing. My watch is not a bad thing. Um, but implants to make us live for an infinite amount of years, uh, I have no time for that. Why? There's something special and precious about, like what, would, what, does, what does marriage mean if it's, 1500 years um you know what what is youth it's right? it's, ama it's amazing how much how much ending an ending yeah gives value to the present impermanence is a beautiful thing it, it's part of the meaning and the structure of our existence and it's to give it embrace that do you think that the average bird is going to fall for the pitch of transhumanism as it ramps up continuously yeah because it it appeals to our base instincts about it's about me and it's about me forever. I think the most perfect beta test of transhumanism is the iPhone. Yeah, I mean, it's a, you're, you're, you might as well just stitch these into people now. Because you, right? feel, you feel lost or not complete when you know you left it at home and you're out. And it's increasingly seeped into the biorhythms of your existence. Yeah. From every aspect to watching you when you sleep. That's spooky shit to me. That's like a whole I'm watching you sleep, and I'm going to tell you in the morning the quality of your sleep. How many sleep. times you farted and your yeah, breathing hell? pattern? And <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, I'm all for calm and stuff like that, but if, I don't want to hear somebody saying, and now it's time yeah. 
to close your eyes, even if it is Braun from Game of Thrones, which I love him, but, you know. We were just having this conversation. He might be my favorite character. He's a hound, come on. Um, the hound is the best. We're rewatching it again for, like, <laughs> the fourth time. Um, you happy with the ending of Game of Thrones? No. Okay. Cop out. See, we're going to have you on again. We'll have you on it's again. Cop out. We'll, talk about, we'll have a pop culture night. Yeah, that's all right. I'm all for that. Um, some great thinkers that you're liking right now that you would suggest people to listen to. Well, I come back to, especially relevant right now with the COVID is um, Camus, right? The great existentialist philosopher. Um, read his book, The Plague. Um, it, it will resonate with everything that's, that's happening right now. I mean, Camus has been uh, sort of caricatured for the myth of Sisyphus and other of his writing, but you know, I just keep coming back to the idea of embracing the idea of claiming a meaning of your existence and committing to that. It's such an important thing. And where I deviate from Camus' line of thinking is really in not just doing that on an individualistic basis, but on a collective basis, collectively embracing meaning and trying to build those bridges of, of the willing Rocky to have shared positive growth-based, love-based, caring-based meanings. Jordan Peterson, yes or no? No. Really? No. Um, Peterson had an, a kernel of a good idea um, about free speech, but then he went off the rails. Um, and he's a colleague uh, at the University of Toronto. But Peterson had some really interesting stuff about thought police. Is you he still there? Yeah, I mean, you can't tell me that I have to think a particular way and then legislate that, which I think is a really important debate to have. Um, but then he waded into waters that are far beyond his theoretical and methodological depth. Well, he became a, he became a hot topic and, and blew up, and I think that's dangerous yeah. for anybody, no matter how smart you are. Yeah, and it's, um, I fundamentally think that where he goes wrong in the end for his own sort of arguments that he's making is he then proclaims expertise in a range of social sciences and the humanities and he didn't have a lick of understanding of the theories that he was talking about. So he went broad. He went broad when he's a very specialist guy. Well, he, I, he's gone through some shit, I think, recently and I think on the other side some of it... Some terrible stuff. There seems to be a different, more broken Jordan Peterson. Yeah. And the... the um, well, so the narrative has changed a little bit. There's a little bit more humility and a little bit more of, a, of an ex, uh, expertise specialized yeah. perspective of things. What I don't disagree with him in his book um, about the rules of your existence is, you know, most people who try to organize social life don't even have their own lives in order. And there's some real wisdom in that, right? right? Is that you need to take care of yourself and get yourself in working order before then you can start saying to other people, this is how you ought to live. Right, but I think he had a he had a really interesting debate, and I think it's an important debate to have in our culture. Um, it's not about pronouns. It wasn't ever about that. It was about the idea that I'm legislated to speak in a particular way. I think Canadians missed that point. Mm. That you know we went into really dangerous grounds. That you have to say you have to say X, Y, and Z. Very good. What uh, one of the last questions? What is one of your favorite standout interviews between two people that you've watched that you think would be good fodder for people to, to oh, peruse? That's a really good question. Well, you know, I oh. love the '70s era interviews, like the Dick, even the Dick Cavett show. Watching uh, Marlon Brando, Malcolm X, yeah. 
Seen Malcolm X speak? Yes, unbelievable. Early and, Muhammad Ali. Regardless of your politics, these guys articulate. I mean, and this is when humans were just speaking the truth. It wasn't even you didn't even have to be a revolutionary. Just humans without any kind of lid on them. Yeah. Just the eloquence and the the fortitude yeah. of two people speaking honestly is so refreshing to look at but like a Brando yeah. Malcolm X these guys if you anyone listening to this like look at 70s era interviews even yeah. 60s like brilliance yeah deep interviews I, I totally took over with my no but you're right though it's if you look at some of the early interviews with Malcolm X if you look at some of the early interviews with Muhammad Ali mm-hmm. particularly in his uh, protest of the Vietnam War right he was a genius yes. at interspersing comedy that appealed to white folks, but really stinging with critiques that then you could get behind. Right? And he was, of course, he was a very polarizing figure, right, among communities, but it was hard to listen to him and think, he's wrong. Yeah. Right? Because he was a master storyteller. That's the thing. He was a master, and that's his interviews were the first that came to my mind when you said that, right? And, and even Farrakhan, yeah, like on Donahue from like '87, yeah, he came on and he was full. It was full of angry white women from Middle America booing him, and the composure, and he just split that room like a razor. So, like, I'm not saying these names because I I, I uh, side with any one side. It's just no. when you watch a human, yeah speak and defend a position it's 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 a it's a master class in communication and humanity it's i'll say it again rocky it's a commitment to a meaning yeah right you can tell a mile away from somebody who's just saying something and you were talking about virtual signaling Mm -hmm. earlier and i couldn't agree with you more there's so much of that it's nauseating um you know when people are telling you something straight up you're the real if they're real what's the real article right I think that's kind of a perfect jump off point for finalizing tonight. And I think that's kind of the theme that I'm coming away from. Like, Mike, you're a real one. And I, I, uh, and I say that honestly, like I, I've given university a really hard time because I'm big on mentorship. I'm big on trades. I'm big on working with your hands. I'm like, ah, don't you all these kids go to school and they go into debt? Yada, yada, yada. I would love to have my kids one day be able to hear a guy like you speak about things because there's there's greatness there and I applaud you and I, I honor you for that and I, I would encourage you to just keep doing what you're doing As Stevie Wonder says teach keep on teaching like yeah, it's uh, you're doing you're doing a good work man well it's overwhelming that that praise and I, I don't know if I deserve even one tenth of it but I'll take it you know I'll take it in the mortal words of Janis Joplin you gotta get it while you can <laughs> well um, so I'll take it brother but um, I, I think you know just it's the idea that I think more people need to, to talk that we keep coming back to and talk beyond the cell phone talk beyond Twitter talk beyond the things that so easily lead to hate and misunderstanding and division develop some genuine meaningful relationships with people and give university a hard time Rocky don't let it you know when we're complacent about what goes on in that institution, mm-hmm. it becomes a bad place to be educated in. Yeah, I think there's good teachers and there's bad teachers. Yeah. There's good cooks and bad cooks. But I'm, I'm, I, I can tell you're a, you're a good teacher, and I just uh, any 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 master in their field, I have great respect for. And and uh, I would love to spend 
the next season of our lives is reconnecting and not having another Absolutely. 10 years uh, schism yeah. between us of life and, and whatever. But uh, I'd love to have you on again, my friend. And uh, talk about the heavy stuff and the light stuff and the... 80s pop culture. Absolutely. But um, we're we're five minutes shy of two hours, and I don't want to go longer than that for everyone's sake. But um, Dr. Michael Atkinson, thank you so much for your time and for your wisdom and your, your life story, man. Thank you. All right. Thank you guys so much.